why the world is broken. I started preparing this on Monday morning. I'd had a long weekend at a, at a house party and Monday morning got up and it was a bit slow so I thought I'd prepare it by going for a walk down around Coogee and Coogee Beach if you know that area and it was a lovely walk to just walk around there and think for a while. You know, get the brain working once more. And so I went there thinking, why the world is broken? What am I gonna say about why the world is broken? The sun was up and it was a beautiful warm morning last Monday morning. It wasn't hot, it wasn't cold, it was just warm. It was just the right temperature, if you know what I mean. You just felt comfortable and relaxed and the sea was deep, deep blue, really lovely blue, and the sky didn't have a cloud in it. And There's a, an island off uh, Coogee called the Wedding Cake Islands, and there the, the surf was bouncing around out there, so it was all white and beauty on the blue, in the blue sky, and, and around there the grass is green because, well, I see it's green around here too. We had rain this kind of summer and autumn, but, so the grass was green, and the sea was blue, the sky was blue, the wedding, it was just... It was a gorgeous morning, really. It was, and in that part, because of lots of tourists and the rest of it, the streets are actually very clean and looked after and kept clean, and the grass is all clipped properly. And so, it, it actually is a, it, it's come to, even the doggy litter is removed from that part of the world. There's little bags that you just got to pick up and carry in, pick up, you know, and people do it, you see. And so, there were lots of people there on Monday morning. It didn't feel like a work morning. Lots and lots of people swimming and running, jumping and walking and smiling and laughing and some of them just sitting there enjoying the, the morning and some in little groups talking. And I was thinking all the time about the world and why is the world broken? And I asked myself, is it broken? I mean, just look at this, it looks like paradise. Nothing looks broken. Everything looks just right. It looks so much like the way God had made the world to look. Picture perfect. Aesthetically attractive and, and appealing. And even the humans seem to have the world under control and, and do the right thing. And is the world broken? Because I can't see it. I went up home and when I got into the study, I sat down and I read the papers. And then page after page and, and, and event after event, story after story, account after account, I was reminded just how broken the world is. Sydney on a warm autumn morning is a little bubble all of its own, not connected with the rest of the world and how the vast majority of people actually live. So let's spend a few moments then. Point two, you'll notice on how and where is it broken? I mean, the most obvious place to see it is the pandemic, isn't it? I mean, in the last year, over three million people have died. And it's a lonely, dreadful death when you die of this particular disease. And the numbers, they're still growing. Especially they're growing amongst poor people in poor countries. 
And they're the ones who are suffering most, like in, in India or Brazil or Argentina or Colombia or, or Peru. You go to a poor country, go to the poor people, and there it's raging. India is in a dreadful state. And they're dying because of poverty, as well as because of the disease. So in Delhi overnight, in the main hospital, they ran out of, of oxygen. And because they ran out of oxygen, people in the wards in Delhi died last night, just for lack of oxygen. We've got lots of oxygen in tanks around Australia. They didn't have them where the poor people are in India. And what really seems broken is the distribution of the vaccine. India is one of the great countries for producing vaccine. That's where the factories are. And, yet, and they made promises that they would send vaccines across to Africa. But now they are in such desperate need because the numbers are growing so fast in India. They are in such desperate need that they're not actually sending the vaccines to Africa anymore. So the poverty and difficulty of India is going to now lead to the spread of the disease in Africa. You and I, we live in a bubble, don't we? You know, we've got live music. We've got David anyway. <laughs> and so here we are. You see, we, we, act, I mean, we, we can be closer to each other. None of us are wearing masks anymore. I mean, it's, it doesn't feel like there's any disease, is there? I mean, we count the numbers in single digits. You know, there was one person in Perth yesterday. Thousands died in India. One person in Perth. We closed the whole city down. You know, I mean, we, we live... It's just so different, isn't it? But I've heard enough of the COVID for the last 12 months. We've been talking about nothing else, have we? So turn, turn to another subject like wars because some of the good news in the paper was our troops are coming home from Afghanistan after the longest war Australia has ever, war, ever fought, we're bringing our troops home from Afghanistan. <laughs> of course, the war's still going on in Afghanistan. It's just we're not going to be there anymore. We're, we're pulling out our troops, but war's everywhere. In Australia it's not, but it is. So I look at Wikipedia, and here's a map from Wikipedia, which we, we get up. And this map is of the world, and wherever you see a colour, that's because in the last 12 months there's been a war where somebody has killed. That's a map of the deaths from war in the world today. The darker the colour, the more deaths. So in 2020, there were 20,000 people killed in Afghanistan. 19,000 in Yemen. And some of these wars that you see up there on that map, some of these wars have been going for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. All of your lifetime, these people have been at war. If you had been born in those countries, you would have been born during war and the war would still be going on. So the normality of life for you is bombs and guns and shootings and armies. That's, that's what life is like in those countries. It, it's awful. But, but what about death without war, the violence? What about murders? Did you know in Mexico there have been 151,000 murders because of the drug wars that are being fought there? 151,000 
people have been killed in that city, in that country, just because of... of there's some sections, the Lancet, the British uh, Medical Journal published, there's some sections, some provinces of, of Mexico where the most common cause of death is murder. That's horrendous, isn't it? Hey, but, you know, when you're walking along Coogee Beach on a Monday morning, nothing could be further from your mind. Nothing was further from my mind, and I was trying to think about it. Nothing could be further from your mind than, than this kind of death by COVID, death by war, death by, by murder. I mean, we live in the Australian bubble. <laughs> the Australian bubble, you don't have those things here. Well, not now. I mean, we have had those things. I mean, my, my grandfather and my great-uncle, they died of the last pandemic here in Australia 100 years ago. And <laughs> when my, my grandmother, uh, she became a widow with half a dozen children or so, and she did what you did in those days. You married another man because there were no widow's pensions or anything like that then. And the next man she married, it. she had a few more kids, and then he was murdered in Eddie Avenue, right at Central Station. So, yeah, we have had murder. We have had pandemics. And a couple of the blokes I taught Sunday school, young fellows back in the 60s, they were killed during the Vietnam War. And, and yeah, we had wars and deaths that way. We have had them here in Australia, have had them in my family, in my life, in my friends. But generally, we don't have it, do we? That, that's, that's years ago, that's somewhere else, it's not us. We don't have war on the doorstep. We don't have a civil war like Syria breaking out here in Australia. Oh, hey, every now and then one state says, stop it, you're not allowed in here, can't go across to Western Australia, can't go up to Queensland, can't go down, every, you know, we have the, but it's not civil war, it's just you can't come here. You see, we live in, in peace, we live in prosperity. That's the Australian bubble. It kind of protects you from the reality of the rest of the world. It just, it just cocoons us in this little bubble, so we're safe. Although, we're deceived. We think that we are good people, we think that we are neighbourly and loving and kind with affection for everybody, but just soon see what we're really like when we lose our prosperity, when we are come under danger. And do you remember the, the toilet paper war? <laughs> that wasn't that long ago, was it? And that war was... was well, why? There was enough toilet paper for everybody. There was no shortage of toilet paper. There was just fear. There was just lack of concern for others. There was lack of generosity. There was greed. There was selfishness. And it was across all the supermarkets until in the end the supermarkets had to stop putting the paper out, had to start rationing. There was no need to ration. We had plenty. But there was a need to ration because our people People were greedy and selfish, not caring for others. That's, that's really sad. We are very rich though. 
One of the ways of testing wealth, they just ask the question, are you better off or worse off than your grandparents? <laughs> the answer is we're all better off than our grandparents. If you just think back to where your grandparents were and what they were like, and we're all better off. Didn't have television, didn't have motor cars, didn't have my grandparents, you know, no refrigerator, no washing machine, those things. They, they, they weren't around, there were no supermarkets, there were no, I mean I can just go on listing it because I know because that's what I'm talking about my life now. When I talk about my grandparents, they were worse off still. As you heard, I mean my grandmother raising all these kids with two dead husbands, that was the kind of normality of a two or three generations ago. And they didn't, they didn't fight over toilet paper because they knew of what you can do with old newspapers. <laughs> the idea that you would buy toilet paper was actually fairly wealthy. Mm. Different world, isn't it? So, we are these wealthy people. So I got thinking some more. And I thought, well, hang on. Wikipedia, newspapers, you can't trust them. Let's turn to some genuine government statistics and look at the state of Australia. Look, is this a place of violence? And so, I looked up the apprehended violence orders but as you can see, they grow every year. The column, the blue column is getting bigger and bigger. That is, there are 33,000 domestic violence orders last year. 33,000. That's the big blue one. The little one, the little blue one, are the, the non-domestic violence orders. You know, you can't get on with each other, so you call the police, you go to the courts, you get a, a violence order against this person, they have to stay away from you. 37,000 were issued last year in New South Wales, not just Australia, just in New South Wales it was. And so you think, well, <laughs> there are such fights, such quarrels, such arguments between people that they have to call in the courts and the police to protect themselves from the other person. 37,000. Well, of course, there's two people in every fight. So that's what 74,000 people have actually involved in these at least, whose fear of their other person, fear of their, their neighbour, fear of their friend, fear of their work colleague was such that they actually had to take a violence order out against them. And it's growing steadily year by year. The newspapers uh, are full of the question of sexual harassment at the moment. So I went to the Australian government report on sexual harassment. And here is three reports that they give to us, um, which David will put up now for us, on the sexual harassment. See, the top line says that one in six women and one in 16 men will be harassed during their lifetime, either experiencing domestic, physical or sexual violence. That's two million, over two million people are going to go through this. There's only 25 million in Australia. Well, what's two million? A little less than 10%. One in 10, one in 11 or 12, something like that, are going to experience domestic, physical or sexual violence. And when you turn to emotional, the second line is the emotional violence. That's why it increases to one in four women and really increases amongst the men, one in 16 men. 
That's over three and a half million people will in their lifetime experience emotional abuse. Domestic rather, sorry, will experience yes, emotional abuse. But when you look at the non-domestic, which is the bottom line, another one in five women and one in 20 men are going to receive non-domestic sexual violence. Another two million people outside of the home, in the workplace, are going to experience this kind of sexual violence. The Australian bubble is not as safe and secure as we think it is. It's, it's, look at the suicide statistics. They don't change much from year to year. They haven't changed for years, but they're depressing when you see them because there are 3,000 deaths by suicide every year in Australia. That is, nine people take their own lives every day in Australia. This day, while we've been talking, nine people have killed themselves. Suicide's the leading cause of death for people between the ages of 15 and 49. Men are three times more likely to commit suicide than women because men are better at it than women. You see, women are twice as likely to self-harm, but they're not as, they don't like using guns in the same way men do. Suicide is a dreadful thing. It's antisocial. Suicide is something always hurts everybody else. The person who commits suicide is usually depressed. The person who commits suicide often thinks, oh, everyone would be happier if I wasn't around. But it's not true. It's a lie. When suicide happens in a family, everybody else suffers. Everybody goes through guilt. Everybody looks at themselves, why wasn't I there for them? How didn't I help them? What more could I have done? It's a terrible, terrible anti-violent, a terrible, terrible anti-social violent thing to do. And it's happening across families all over Australia. Nine every day. Families ripped apart. People made to feel guilty. Not just one or two, 20, 30 people that will know the person will be hurt by what has taken place. So when I look at the Australian bubble, it's full of violence. I mean, I've just looked at a few things. I haven't touched on the return service personnel's trauma, their post-traumatic stress and suicide, which is so bad that the government is now setting up a royal commission to investigate. I haven't looked at the black deaths in custody, which again, we've had royal commissions to look into what can be done about it. I haven't looked at the, the, the social media abuse that is affecting so many of our teenagers today and leading people into depressive and depression and into suicide. I just looked at a few, but the more I look at Australia, it's not like Coogee on a Monday morning. I still feel safe and protected. I feel like, I, because I'm in, in a family bubble that is protective. I mean, those statistics of the world, they're horrible. And those statistics of Australia, they're horrible. But it's not, not where I live. It's not me. It's not my family. It's not our existence. But my friends, the family bubble is now coming under pressure. The family bubble is dissolving. The family patterns of Australia are changing and falling apart. In domestic violence. More than one woman is murdered each week. 
That's murdered. I mean, murdered is the end point of horror of things like that. I mean, before you get to murder, there's lots of other things happen, aren't there? And so that's not counting abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, verbal or economic abuse. It's not counting the number of women who are beaten or raped or threatened or deserted. It's, it's only counting the end point, 70 or 80, 90, I can't remember the exact number, but it's more than one a week is happening in Australia inside families, domestic violence. Mind you, men, men are three times, no, men are twice as likely to be murdered as women. It's just that they're not murdered at home. In domestic violence, they get murdered outside the home, usually with people they know. There's very few murders of total strangers. They're always people, not always, but nearly always people that are known to them. And so more than twice the men, twice the men are than women. Or, or, or look at child protection. Yeah, think of the children. In the year 2018-19, in the 12 months in that period, over 70,000 children in Australia were put in under care and protection orders. 70,000 children. Another 97,000 were investigated but weren't taken out of their family. That is, on average, there's one child in every class who is in protective care. Uh, a law firm that's working in the area says that the number of children in foster care in New South Wales has doubled in the last 10 years. The, the family's falling apart. The family protection that you may still feel, and I still feel, actually is the pins in the bubble. <laughs> it's collapsing around about us. The rate of divorce is rising. It's hidden by the decline in the number of people who are even bothering getting married. And therefore it brings the subject of brokenness into our homes. What's your home like? Where is it up to in the suffering that is happening? And therefore, not just into our home, but it becomes a personal. My own personal bubble is safe and secure. I am all right. But then I'm swinging from being happy and content with life to being frustrated and depressed and annoyed and critical of ourselves. <laughs> from being down at Coogee and feeling all's well with the world to going home and feeling nothing's right with the world. And we resolve the tension that we have within ourselves by selective listening. We only listen to the Coogee end. We don't listen to the newspaper end. It's not about us. And so we move into self-deception. And self-deception is what I want to really address to you this, this evening. Self-deception. The saddest of all lies is the lie you tell yourself. And the only thing sadder than telling yourself a lie is believing the lie that you tell yourself. That's even sadder still, isn't it? And we are very good at lying to ourselves. Because what are we really like? What are you really like? What am I really like? I mean, you can look at me and just say, oh, well, he's tall, handsome, good-looking, athletic kind of person. That's what he's really like. But no, I'm saying, what, what am I really like? Self-deception's everywhere. What am I really like? Now, look what Jesus said. 
This is what Jesus said we are really like. For from within, out of the people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. There's nothing outside me coming in that defiles me. It's what's within me going out that defiles me. Nobody forces me to be envious, to slander, to be proud, to be foolish. I'm never forced to do any of those things. They're my choices. I do them. They're my character. It's my heart that's like that. And it's not just my heart. It's Joe's. He's like that too. And Adam's like that. And David's like that. And aren't you glad I don't know your name? Because <laughs> you're like that, and you're like that, and you're like that. We are all like that. Jesus is saying that is what the human heart is really like. All of us. We all have within us evil thoughts. We all have within us envy, pride, self-indulgence, lies. Let me show it to you. Show it to you quickly and easily. I'll pick on lies because it's less embarrassing than most of the others that are on the list there. But, you see, a quick exercise involves hand raising. Are you ready? Who, who here thinks that telling lies is wrong, is immoral? Right? Just show of hands. I mean, I can't see them all, so let's do it the other way. Put up your hand if you think telling lies is a good and right thing to do. We don't believe you because you believe in telling lies. Huh? We all know telling lies is wrong. Okay, next question for you. Hands up if you've ever told one. Yeah, there we go. Again, just to make sure, put your hand up if you've never told one. Because, you know, you can tell it. Well, we know you're a liar, so you can tell another one now. You see, we, we all... Here it is. Just, just think. Just be rational for a minute. Just think of the logic, right? Telling lies is wrong. We all tell lies. Telling lies is immoral. We all tell lies. We are all immoral. That's when you came to church tonight. Did you realise you're going to come to church with a whole bunch of immoral liars? Because that's who's turned up. Because that's who we are. That's what humans are. Humans are all liars. Humans are all immoral. Nobody ever forces me to tell a lie. I do it all of my own accord. That's the nature of it. And when you have a society that is built on the foundations of people who are liars, what kind of society are you going to get? but one full of advertisers and used car salesmen and real estate agents and politicians and liars. The whole society is going to be built on the corruption of, of truth. The very character is that of lies, but I picked on that. It's also, according to Jesus, greed, envy, slander, theft, murder. You think, oh, no, no, I haven't done that. I, you know. No, Jesus is not overstretching it. Tax returns are coming up very soon. 
talk about lies and theft, there you go. I mean, we employ a whole army of people in the government to go around and test out people's tax returns. Why? Because they know that people tell lies on the tax returns. They know that people try and steal from the government by not paying their taxes. Uh, in the paper yesterday, I noticed there was a thing that they're actually looking at the taxation of... of um, uh, I can't remember the name of the lolly. Um, yeah, Tim Tams. Tim Tams. You see, when we're at work in the office, the boss gives us morning tea, afternoon tea. When we're at home, working at home, we've got to provide our own morning and afternoon tea. But whereas it's tax-free in the office, it's not tax-free at home. So there are going to be people who are putting in tax returns saying, I bought a packet of Tim Tams each week. And so I'm having that as a tax deduction. And you can't have that as a tax deduction. So we've got these government officials going around counting Tim Tams. Because we know people are so good at lying, they'll get down right down to Tim Tams, which is about as stupid as I know. But not only do we employ an army of people to check up on tax returns, we've got another army of people who are actually employed by us to go around and minimise our tax and fill in the forms for us in such a way that we don't have to pay tax. In fact, some even illegally avoiding tax. As a community, you can kind of stand back and think about running a country to employ two armies of people, I'm talking thousands of people, two armies of people to do nothing other than work out who's cheating and help other people too, that's got to be a daft, silly way of organising our labour force. But yet we do. Why do we do it? Because theft is in the human heart. Stealing, greed, selfishness is in the human heart. You don't believe me? Have you locked your car? Why did you lock your car if you think everybody's a nice, good person? But the question of this, this evening is not, is the world broken? Or how and where is it broken? But the third question really is, why is it broken? That's the big topic, why is it broken? And what's the explanation for the brokenness of human lives and societies? I've got three explanations that you'll commonly hear, and I want to tell you how silly they are, before I point you to the Bible's explanation. The first one is... The first explanation is denial. They continued support, continued argument of the unsupported nonsense about the fundamental goodness of human nature. They say, there's nothing wrong with people. I have faith in human nature. I believe in the goodness of my fellow citizen. Well, you're an idiot. <laughs> you leave your car door open and the ignition key in. Just the engine running so that anybody can... Well, they wouldn't take my car, would they? No one steals cars. I've got my front door open. I, you know, I don't bother locking the door because I believe in the goodness of human nature. No one believes in the goodness of human nature because we know the reality of human nature. And they say, but it's not human nature. It's not the people themselves. It's the system. It's the, it's the education system. It's the culture we live in. It's the institutions of life. These explanations are clearly, frankly, nonsense. Think about your parenting. Have you ever heard parents saying to their children, now, now Johnny, don't, don't share your toys, you keep them to yourself. 
And Lizzie, you make sure you eat the last piece of cake. Don't, don't give it away to anyone else. Hang on to, the, hang on to your, yourself. And, and Freddie, whatever you do, you tell lies to protect yourself because that's the best way to avoid being punished. Have you ever heard parents telling children that? Of course not. It's the exact reverse is what we're always saying. We work so hard to teach our children not to be self-centered, not to be greedy, not to be liars. Where do the children get wrongdoing from? I mean, our children come out beautiful and perfect and thoroughly contaminated by this same heart problem that we all have. It's not imposed upon them to be doing the wrong thing. It comes out from within. This wonderful grand, this wonderful daughter of mine, who was the godmother of Joe's daughter, when she was a little tot, tiny little tot, she gave us her first full sentence. Up until then it was, you know, dad, dad, mum, mum, but, but she finally gave one complete sentence, you know, subject, verb, object. It was a logical unit called a sentence. She gave the whole thing. And we remember her first full sentence because it was a lie. <laughs> you know, there she was in the lounge room with the old TV aerial broken in two, one bit in one hand, one bit in the other hand. And she told us about her brother who had been at school all day because she said, this is the sentence, Matthew did it. <laughs> Where did she get that from? Where did she learn that when you speak in sentences you tell lies? Her mother <laughs> did not teach her that. Another explanation is fatalism, you see. Look, it's just the way the world is. <laughs> These things are neither right nor wrong, neither good nor bad. <laughs> the atheists actually say this, if you check out Professor Dawkins. That's what he's saying. It's just the way to live in the jungle of life. They're, they're survival techniques. It's just part of the survival of the fittest. Really? <laughs> Do you want to say... So there's no difference between humans and animals. There's no morality. There's no justice. There's no love. There's no truth. There's, there, there, there's just animal appetites to satisfy. You know, can, can we really, do you really, could it possibly realize, believe that murder, rape, theft, pedophilia are just all the ways of this world? Just, just survival techniques. It's appalling. And then there's that other explanation I've got down there called tribalism. That's a very common one. <laughs> it's not my fault. It's not our fault. It's them out there. They do it. They're the ones who are in trouble. They're the ones. It's, it's the different people to us. The, the woke inner city latte drinking elitists. It's their fault. Or if you're one of them, it's the boring, conservative, family-oriented suburbanites. It's their fault. It's, it's other people than me. It's people in power. Power corrupts, doesn't it? It's their fault. It's the system. It's the government. It's ScoMo's fault. <laughs> it's 
all ScoMo's fault. Whatever it is, it's ScoMo's fault. I tell you, the trouble with elections is we always elect politicians. I don't know which election we have. And the longer I live, the more I see that changes in government make no difference, really. You change one politician for another politician and nothing much improves, nothing ever changes, it just goes on the same. History would teach us that it's easy to rouse a revolution, to remove a government, to throw out a ruling class, but it's nigh impossible to create a better government and a better ruling class, especially made up of revolutionaries. So I want you to look seriously at the Bible's explanation, for it makes more sense of the world than any of the other alternatives. Look at the verse printed at the top there under the title, you see. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. Notice two things about it. Firstly, it's not some of us. It's all of us that he said here. We are all like that. We've all joined the flock and travelling together. We all have turned aside. It's not just the people over this side. Those ones are okay. These were No. It's not that there are good people and bad people. No. We all have done the same thing. And secondly, notice, we've all turned to our own way. What's that mean? What have we turned away from to turn to our own way? I mean, I understand what it means. We've turned to our own way. We've made ourselves the ruler of our own lives. We've turned to self-government, to self-centeredness, to, to being our, the, the person in control of ourselves. But what have we turned away from to do that? And here, of course, is the Bible's great explanation of why the world is broken. Because what we've done is we've turned away from our Creator. We've turned away from the one who has made this wonderful, beautiful world. We've turned away from the one who has made these magnificent creatures called humans. <laughs> humans are magnificent. You can't make a computer as good as us. Artificial intelligence is very impressive, but it's nothing compared to the real intelligence that's just sitting in your head. We, we've turned away from the one who made the world in all its magnificence, who made that world that I saw down in the country. We've turned away from the one who's made it. And we've turned rather to choose to live for ourselves. Here's the great lie that's built into the very foundation of, of our lives and of society and of the world. That God is not the ruler over us, I am the ruler over me. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own destiny. I am answerable to nobody but me. That's the lie. Here's the basis of all immorality, the basis of all selfishness. If I think I am the God of my life, surprise, surprise, I'm going to be selfish. That's the logical outcome of it. And how are we going to get on together? I think I'm God. You think you're God. You think you're God. It's all right if we keep away from each other, but as soon as we bump into each other, who's the real God amongst us? We all have gone astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way. Over the page. This is why I believe... 
This is why I live in my broken world. I mean, it's really God's world, his magnificent world, which is a broken world. But the little part of the world that is me is really broken too. And I need to see it. I need to face the truth. It's broken. It's a world that is dysfunctional because lies never help. Greed is always anti-socialism. Materialism is just barren and soulless. And that's the nature of Australian society. You build a society or a world on a lie, on greed, on envy, on self-centred, deceitful people, of course nothing's going to work properly. Of course we're going to wind up in domestic violence and war and hatred and hostilities. Stop and think about it. Do you want to live with somebody who's, who's, who's selfish? Of course not. That's the worst flatmate you could choose. That's the worst spouse you could choose. So why do you think that a society built on people who have all turned to their own way will not be a selfish society? We don't see it because there's enough toilet paper around, but you only have to have a COVID and then you see what people are really like. Emptying the shelves, making sure they're looked after. <laughs> there was always enough paper. Stop and think about it. Why, why do you excuse your own selfishness when you don't want it in the people around about you? What kind of hypocrisy is that? Oh, he's really selfish. As if I'm not really selfish. The brokenness of the world is not just out there. It's not overseas. It's not just Victoria. It's not just, you know, Canberra. <laughs> the brokenness of the world here, at my work, in my home, in my heart. That's where it is. And until we grasp that, we'll never fix the world. We'll never fix ourselves. It's also the world for which I am responsible, you see, because it is me. There's no point pointing the finger at them, at the others. I'm part of the flock. I've turned away from God. I've turned to my own way. And one day God is going to hold me to account. One day I'm going to come face to face with my maker. And on that day I'm going to have give account. I'm going to be held responsible, not only for what I've done, but also for how I've hurt other people by my life, by my broken heart. Now we're going to find out more about that next week in our series. You'll notice there, uh, we'll advertise it next week, why does it hurt when somebody dies? Because death comes to all. And in death we meet God. Why does it hurt when someone dies? David's going to come and speak next week on that subject. That is how God reacts to the people who have broken his world, who have broken his society, who have broken and hurt each other. How God reacts. Why? Why does... Why does it hurt when somebody dies? Really important topic. Keep coming to this series. What did you say, but Philip, it's, I'm not enjoying this series. I mean, <laughs> your, your sermon this morning, this evening, it's pretty depressing, actually, isn't it? You know, I mean, 
I've come to come to church to be lifted up and what I've had from the great visiting speaker is to be put down and I don't feel like coming again to hear more about what's wrong with me let alone what's wrong with the world let alone what God's going to do to it and I can understand that because I was given this title but in a couple of weeks from this time we're going to hear what God does to rescue the world and those weeks they're going to be terrifically uplifting but if you don't face up to what's wrong with the world you'll never find out how to fix it just pretending oh no everything's all right everything's all right everything's all right never fixes anything you've actually got to find out what's really wrong not just with the world what's really wrong with me that's what you're going to find out isn't it because only then have you got any chance but from this depressing sermon is there no hope is the brokenness of the world of my my, my little world is it restorable you won't find that word in the dictionary i made it up but you know what it means it's a good word isn't it, it might appear in dictionaries in years to come restorable right? is it restorable well we're going to hear more of that in the subsequent weeks that's why you've got to keep coming to this whole six week series it's very important to keep coming hearing about that <laughs> my son when he was a little boy before he went to school and his sister dobbed him in for something he never did my my son had a, you know, a little bunnikin cup which he dropped and smashed into lots of little pieces and he was upset because it was his favorite cup his only cup and so he's but a great friend of our family was a man called john chapman and he, he'd been a manual arts teacher before he'd become a great minister and he took it home, he took up all the little pieces, took it home and like a jigsaw puzzle he put it all back together again and then he got glue and stuck all the tiny little pieces together so that the cup was still the cup. But of course when you looked at the cup now it was a kind of maze of, of bits of glue going here, there and everywhere. It was all kind of crazy thing, you couldn't see the picture properly anymore. It was a cup, it was his cup. but it looks awful and, and, and John Chapman gave it back to my son with a little note saying I've tried to fix your cup and here it is I fixed your cup but only God can make something better than you he can fix something but you can't actually fix it properly you can't fix it so it was better than it was before you started is the world restorable? Is your heart, is your brokenness actually able to be fixed? Not by you, it's not. Not by John Chapman, it's not. Only by God can it be fixed. And how God fixes it, keep coming, keep coming. You're going to hear how God fixes it. Not next week, you're going to hear what God's going to do to it, but the weeks after, how God fixes it. But in case you can't wait, because there are some impatient people who say, well, what you're saying, Philip, it's, it's true. I know it's true. I need to turn back to God. If you've got that already, there's a prayer here on the sheet. And I'm going to finish by praying that prayer. But I've written it on the sheet for you to take home, to keep thinking about it in the next week or two. 
as you hear each of these sermons to keep thinking about it because you might be ready to pray it in a week's time when you're not ready to pray for it tonight but actually some of you might well be ready to pray for it right now it's a simple prayer it's got three paragraphs to it the first paragraph is the one I've been talking about tonight I know I'm not worthy, I don't deserve, I'm guilty, I need forgiveness, you see. It's, it's about the truth about me. If you haven't reached that point, then there's not much point praying for any help because you don't think you need it, which is a lie you do. The second paragraph is about thanking God for what he does. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven for raising Jesus from the dead so as to give me new life. That's God making it better than you. Thank you God for that and therefore the third paragraph asks for what we need. I need forgiveness. Jesus dies that I may be forgiven. Please forgive me. But not just forgive me, change me so that I will no longer live for myself but for Jesus as my ruler. That's how you turn back to God. And I'm going to invite you to do that right now as I pray this prayer. I'm going to pray it out loud and I invite you to pray it in your own heart and mind to God. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you and I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. And friends, if that is your prayer, I want to say three things to you. One, you will be forgiven. How do I know you'll be forgiven? Jesus died to forgive you. That's how you know. And you will be changed. How do you know Jesus? How do you know you'll be changed? Because Jesus isn't dead. He's risen from the dead. He rules the world. He sends his spirit to change people. And thirdly, if it is your prayer, you should talk to someone about it. Talk to, to Adam or to Joe or to David and say, look, I prayed that prayer, what do I do next? All you need to say is, I prayed that prayer, they'll take it from there.